That is that is the second bell. But I am not testing, testing. One, two, testing, over, over. And uh, I am not. I don't think this is working. Testing, testing. One, two, Jiminy Doo, Yeehaw, Giddy Up. Oh, you have the whole song? Yeah, we'll just do the first verse. I got nothing. I got nothing. All right, good trick, morning. Trick. Well, uh, the microphone's going to turn on any moment now, so be prepared. As soon as it comes on, my voice used at this volume is going to be way too high. <laughs> hey, we thought we'd uh, start uh, class this morning with a song because it's uh, going to introduce our theme. Uh, do you know the song, which... I don't even know the title. Or God, He is Alive is the name of the song. Uh, and I don't have the words on the screen, so those of you that know it, uh, sing along because you're going to find out real quick why they never let me lead singing uh, here. <laughs> but jump right in. Uh, it starts like this. <clears throat> there is beyond the azure blue a God concealed from human sight. He tinted skies with heavenly hue and framed the worlds with his great might. There is a God, he is alive. In him we live and we survive. From dust our, from dust our God created man. He is our God, the great I am. Man, I still get chills thinking about that. Good good job on the microphone. Thank you. Thank you. For getting us Ooh, hello. right there at the boom at the end, the great I am. I can remember now, uh, the reason that song came to mind is I can remember sitting in our congregation as just a small child, I mean probably eight, nine, or ten, and that song was one of the first ones where I could follow all the guys around me <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. seeing the bass line, yes. and then really belting it out. But it wasn't until years later that I understood why it ended so powerfully with his name, the great I am. I am. And that introduces our theme uh, for today. Yeah, so this morning we're going to focus in uh, on this idea of these I am's uh, you keep coming across in John. And as a quick reminder for those who may haven't have been here, uh, we're trying to take a thematic approach through the book of John, uh, not highlighting verse by verse, but highlighting key themes, giving you a tour guide's perspective of the intriguing and exciting things you'll come across in the book of John. And as we have been doing every week, and hopefully you came prepared today, I know maybe somebody did, not looking at Liz per se, um, but if you read through John this week and anything jumped out at you that you'd want to share with, with the rest of the class, um, something maybe memorable, intriguing, exciting, something that moved you, made you upset, anything and everything, uh, now's the time you could share that. All right, Liz, go ahead.
Yeah, so Liz makes the comment that in chapter 17, uh, Jesus makes the statement talking about, I go to prepare a place for you. And in reading that, an understanding of the helper coming, that gave her chills, uh, which that chills is a good representation of the spirit itself, I would suggest. Um, that's how it's, it's, it's meant to call you into a reaction to these words, and that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah, so Jesus makes a comment Yeah, in, in, in chapter 2 where he says he didn't entrust himself to the people because he knew the intentions of the people. Um, and I know for me that, that sends little sparks back. Uh, and you, it's not, I don't think it's obvious necessarily, and maybe I'm reading something in there that is not, but it makes me think of the flood. Because uh, after the flood, God makes a very similar phrase where he says, you know, I just destroyed all these people, but yet, and, and here I have Noah making a sacrifice. But he says something very similar. The heart and the intention of every man is still evil. Um, and Jesus kind of has the same idea. He knows what they want. They don't want him. They want the things he's giving them. Which, by the way, can I jump in with uh, oh, yeah. this phrase? This fra- Mike, you bring up an important statement there. The, uh, when John is writing this, he actually says there that Jesus did not, I think our translations say, entrust himself to them. That word entrust is the word faith that we talked about several weeks ago, that word belief. And so throughout John, John's teaching us to put our firm conviction in Christ at the end of chapter 2, John says, but Jesus did not put his, it's the same word, faith in people. And do you know the very next story that comes in, the next narrative that comes in, right after it says that Jesus did not put his faith in people, and there was a guy who came to him at night named Nicodemus. And that's the introduction into that next story in chapter 3. So that's, a good, that's really a good thing to catch is that Jesus isn't putting his faith in us. We're being called to put our faith in, in him. Yeah, so taking us back to chapter 4, the very first time you see Jesus saying, let me let you in on a little hint who I am. It's to a woman in that day and time, and not just any woman of that day and time, someone who was totally out. A Samaritan woman who they didn't talk to. Yeah. Igno- she's an ignoble woman, yes. Yeah, but they're yeah, but they're back to back to give you this quick contrast between the leader of the law had didn't have a clue what was happening, and then you have this supposedly uneducated, they weren't supposed to teach her the law woman who knew what to look for. And she was convinced quickly. And then the thing the first thing she does was she goes and evangelizes an entire town. You know, and Nicodemus is still over there scratching his head. So, yeah, it's a beautiful contrast. Yeah, and of all the stories John could have told of Jesus' interactions with people, he chose that one. What is it about that 
event that we're meant to catch. Yeah, and she's and like you pointed out correctly, she's the first person he directly says, "I am the Messiah." To, and then and then if you continue that theme, we touched on several weeks ago, but women have a profound representation in the Book of John compared to men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy, that's good. That's a great place to jump into the theme. But I'm curious, anybody else? Tony. Yeah, yeah. So John 17, reading the prayer that Jesus prays about him at the very beginning, eternal life. Well, yeah, yeah, 17.3, that's a, a lot of commentators like to point out. It's one of the most concise definitions of what eternal life is. To know the Father and to know the Son. Yeah. It's beautiful to dwell on that. Yeah, thank you. John 17, you take us back there. We're going to have to spend a whole week on 17. I yeah. think that's going to be its own theme. Because you get to watch Jesus praying. I mean, that's the, the whole point of 17. And you find out what is on the heart of God at the moment of this incredible moment in, in history. Thank you. In fact, that's a good place to turn to our purpose statement, which is John chapter 20. You have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible, uh, go to the end of John, to chapter 20. This is where John gives us the purpose of writing this entire gospel And there he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe, that you may have a firm conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christos, the Christ, the Son of God. And here's our theme for this week. By believing, you may have life, remember Zoe, in his name. So the theme this week is to figure out, maybe together, here in the coffee shop, what what does John mean? Or the living room. (laughs) Or the living room. (laughs) What does he mean by, what does he mean by name? Well, and when you first look at that phrase, I think a lot of times, I know for me, you, you hone in on believe. I'm to believe in this name, or believe in Jesus. But the, I think John's main focus there is what do you get out of that? You get life in his name, which... I think at first glance, you're like, what does that even mean? Okay, and we found, we, boy, this is a deep well. We hope to get through <laughs> even, a, even a, a minimal amount of the conversation we went into here. But where would you take us to talk about the name and what does it mean? So if you're starting in John, the first story that stood out to me would have been John 18, uh, when they come to arrest Jesus. Uh, so verses 1 through 11, you get the account of, there's a group of people led by Judas, who's betraying him, that come to arrest Jesus at night while he's in the garden. And, and it's interesting to note that the three synoptics, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only mention uh, the Jewish leaders coming. So they give you an idea that it's maybe members of the Sanhedrin, uh, but more likely it's probably temple guards or temple police coming to get him. Uh, but John uses this word cohort. And most historians or most scholars will tell you that that word has direct implications to Romans 
coming with them, Roman soldiers, which I don't necessarily understand the full depth behind that, but it's, it's, it's understood or believed heavily that there was maybe two to 600 Roman soldiers coming with these people yeah. to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night with clubs, with swords, with torches, like they're coming to arrest some sort of rebellious leader. Even if they're not Roman soldiers, the word that is used here by John, my translation says band, that's what I have on the screen here, or cohort, that, that's, what that brings to mind is about 600 people. That's one-tenth of a legion, uh, which have been a Roman you know, unit in the military. Uh, a band would be about 600. So imagine this crowd, 600 well-trained, well-armed soldiers with the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and out there in the front is Judas. Judas. Yeah. Well, and then they're coming to what would have been, we assume, just 12 people. You have Jesus, and then you have the other 11. And one of whom has a sword. Yeah, one of whom has a sword. And, and I, I can't remember which account, but Jesus said, yeah, that's enough. That'll be fine. <laughs> or we two. Just, yeah, they had yeah, two swords. Two. We'll, we'll be good. And so when they come to him, they say, and Jesus, you know, he says, well, whom are you looking for? And just the fact when Jesus asks obvious questions, that's a fun theme to go back and look at because it happens throughout the scriptures. Um, but he asks them this question, and they say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is he only says two words to them in Greek. And it's this phrase, ego, em, how do you say it again? Ego and me. Ego and me. Yeah. And, and that's all he says to them, which means I am. And in your translations, you'll see the one on the board. When Jesus, they come up to him and say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. That's three words in Greek, as you're saying. It's really only two. He just says, I am. Yeah, because yeah, they're adding this word he. Because it's implied. I am the one you're looking for. I am this guy. And then you get this weird, quick little blurp in verse 6. Cause and it says, now then, when he had said to them, I am he, this ego me, they drew back and fell to the ground. You're given no explanation of why they fell back. Did they take the step back? Did they trip over something? But if you have hundreds of people who all experience this at the same time, something profound was happening with Jesus saying this phrase, ego et me. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you, and at least for me, it gives this, under, this connotation that I, you get a sense, by the time you've read through John and get here, there is a force pushing them back. <clears throat> Jesus' essence, his power, this glory of God fully put into a man is now being expressed in a way that pushed back, you know, these people with ill intent. And, and one of the commentaries, although he doesn't think it's linked at all, but it's fun to reference, uh, Psalms 27 and then Psalms 56, they give you these two kind of phrases where it talks about, you know, when the enemies come against you, they will fall back. Um, and so it just, it's this nice picture of, you know, Jesus had these things in his mind as it was going on, uh, that his... Just, to, just saying his name, just, rep, just claiming who he was, was powerful enough to push back this entire band of people coming to get him. And so most of you will catch this. If you've read through John, you'll come to this phrase. And if you were reading it, let's say, in the original Greek, this would just jump out at you, but in a way that was almost expected. So you have this huge crowd, 600 trained soldiers uh, with the Sanhedrin and Judas, and they say, you know, or Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And then they all fall down, you know, there. Yes, Stephen has it. Yeah, yeah. So I, we've just been met by overwhelming force here, and that's what John. That's a great point. That's that's what you're meant to catch here, is they have come face to face with an overwhelming power. But the phrase that John focuses on here is this word "ego emi," which just in Greek means 
I am. Now, those of you that have read through John or are familiar with this, can you think of other times in John where John brings out that word, I am? And let's just brainstorm for a minute. What, uh, what comes to mind immediately when you think of this word, I am? Say, say again. Oh, John 8. What came to mind in John 8? Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. John 8 is a great one <clears throat> where he, uh, <laughs> he says, before Abraham existed, I am. And do you remember what they did? Well, they didn't just leave him. They reached down and grabbed stones. Yeah, they wanted to, to kill him over it. To stone him because he uttered that phrase, I am. Where else does it show up in John? Have you noticed? Yes, Donna. Yeah. Oh, that's one of my favorite. Yeah, that's I, the first time. You, he says it. That's the very first time in John that this word, this formulation of a title is used, I am. And you wouldn't necessarily catch it. It's neat that your eye catches that because in most translations, they're having this conversation. Jesus, just so you know, is talking to a woman. They're at a well. And uh, Jesus asks her for some water. And there's a conversation about him giving her living water. That'd be quite a trade. (laughs) Give me a cup of water. I'll give you living water. And then she finds out or considers him to be a prophet and says, I think you're somebody who can answer this question. Should we worship here or there? And Jesus, this is going to sound like a Dr. Seuss poem. He says, uh, eventually you will not worship me here or there. You will not worship anywhere because what the, the worshipers the Father seeks are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And she goes, oh, this is too much. She goes, I know eventually the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, Christos is going to come and he'll explain everything to us. And that's when you see Jesus look at her and say, Ego imi, the one speaking to you. That's the way the phrase is actually written. He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm he, I'm the one talking to you. He says, Ego imi. And you're meant to catch that. Yeah. And then where else do you find that in John? That's scary. Yeah, so John hits on seven I am statements. Uh, you have the bread of life, the light of the world. Uh, you have the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, uh, the way, the truth, and the life, and then the true vine. Um, and you'll find those. Uh, late, they, they occur throughout. Um, but yeah, Jesus is making seven gigantic theological claims uh, by saying these things. And, and you're exactly right. Each one of those is ego and me. Uh, and you're meant to hone in on those as you read through. Yeah, and quite honestly, you know, that's where we started today's class. We said, hey, let's just take the seven statements. That'll be today's theme. And we got sucked into <laughs> yeah, the no. very first part of it. Way too much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, Rose, thank you. That's really an important point, and that is as this formulation shows up throughout John, there are different responses. And there's the big one at the end we talked about, full force falling down. There are sometimes where they reach down and grab a stone to stone him. There are times like the woman who says, you're it. <laughs> she runs back to town and then brings the whole town to see him. There are these different responses to that. And then John, of course, is trying to get you along the way with these seven statements to get you to the end, which was our purpose statement. Hey, you realize he did a lot more than what we just showed you. But I showed you these so you would be convinced that he is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name. And, the, and when you see the word name, you're meant to go back and recall all of those ego and me statements. That they all then are crammed yeah. into that thesis statement. In fact, this just for those of you who like trivia, um, guess how many times uh, this formulation, ego and me, is used? Well, let's start with the others. In Matthew, if you had to guess. <laughs> Somebody shout out four. Yeah, there's four. Four times. Guess how many times it's used in Mark? One less. Three. Oh, that's go. great. Yes. He got it. You got good man. How about Luke? <laughs> Luke equals Matthew. <laughs> no, he's four. This he's one's like, four, yeah. Yeah, it's four. So it's four, three, four. And then you get to John. And guess how many times you find this phrase? We counted, and we argued a little bit about yeah. this. We, had, we counted uh, 24 times he brings us in. So the point there is you're meant to catch this. And this phrase, ego and me, is more than just saying I am in terms of uh, using a to-be verb, uh, you're meant to catch this is a title. This is a name. Now, where does that take us? Mm, it takes us to the same place we were at last week, the book of Exodus. Um, keep coming across these things which you learn about God and the definition of him and Jesus and their, and their cohabitation of the same thing. You keep going back to Exodus. Um, and then this time we're going back to Exodus 3, and, and what you'll find here is a very familiar story that I'm pretty sure we've all heard of, where you have Moses, he's on a mountain, he's shepherding a sheep, he's already left Egypt, he's now, I think, pushing 80 years old, and as he's on this mountain, he sees a bush on fire, um, it's not being consumed, and then he hears a voice call him out of this bush, and, you know, you know Moses, Moses, and he says, well, here I am, you know, and essentially, he actually only says here, like he's present in school, but... He goes to this bush, and then God starts talking to him and says, hey, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and, and then they have this discourse. And it's verses 10 through 15 um, is where the heavyweight comes in today. Yeah, so let me just read this out loud. We're in Exodus chapter 3. We'll have it on the screen, but find it in your Bible too, where Moses is having this conversation now with the angel of the Lord. Uh, and, uh, and God says, basically, come. I will send you to Pharaoh, back to Egypt, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he, God, said, But I will be with you. You won't catch this, but what he's basically saying is, I will be present. It's kind of a, a not present tense, future tense. I will exist with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt out. You shall serve me on this very mountain. And if you keep reading the story, you'll find they do make their way back to that mountain. This is where the Ten Commandments eventually will be uh, passed along to him. 
And then verse 13, let's talk about this. Then Moses says to God, well, wait a minute. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And I, I think we have to pause here to uh, maybe just comment on a little bit of Hebrew grammar because <laughs> this seems a little bit strange when what, what am I what's your name God notice that we're told the story here that Moses is talking and we're told that God said do you see the word God there do you realize that the word God when it shows up in your Bible is not God's name it's just his title it's like if I were talking to my siblings and said hey uh you know, mom is coming this afternoon. That's a title. We all know who we're talking about, but that's the title. Yeah, we use the ones like Queen Elizabeth, you know, King George. It's it's a title. It's not their, I mean, it wouldn't be their legal name. It's Although if we say Queen Elizabeth, then Elizabeth would be her name. Correct. Yeah, right. but it's leading off with, you know, you heard that first word, queen. It's a descriptor. It tells you which Elizabeth, you know, it defines who she is. So that's Moses asking, okay, which God? Well, I tell them, you know, and at first, I think one of the questions we had was, well, why would why would he even care about the name? I mean, why? I think in our context, we would think that was weird, but I think when you get in the mind of Moses and think of where he's coming from, he's just been in Egypt most of his life. That's where most, you know, they've been there for four hundred years at this point. The, the children of Israel, and they're surrounded by gods. There's all kinds of gods that are there: the Egyptian gods, foreign gods, and so it makes perfect sense for him to ask, "Well, which one are you?" You know, who am I serving today? Are you the are you the the, the the god of the sun? Are you the god of the sea? Who's talking to me right now? Um, so he's trying to narrow in which one are you, which is uber important to then go tell the children of Israel, this is the God who's trying to save you. And so God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Do you see how the word I am, that phrase, is now a name. And so God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, and now this changes. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be. Well, which is his name? Is his name I am, or is his name Lord? One thing to catch here, real quick, and then we'll do a little bit of Hebrew grammar, is notice how when God says, tell the people of Israel this, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has come, or is coming, and this is his name. Do you notice how something different about the way L-O-R-D is written? You'll notice this in your Bibles, too. It's all capitals. The extra letters there are smaller capitals, but they're all capitals. That is the translator's way of giving you a hint that what you are looking at here is the holy, actual, uneffable, is that even the word? Unspeakable name of God. And the translators will just write that L-O-R-D, and there's reasons for that. But you'll see this throughout all over the Old Testament. You'll see this word Lord, but be watching for it. Whenever you see that word Lord, and they're all in capitals, you're looking at God's actual name. So let me show you what that actually looks like. So if we were to (laughs) go into a grammar class and look at just English, uh, when we read in our English versions the word I am, you've already seen that throughout John. If that was written by John in Greek... There you see how it looks when that's written, ego imi. But if you see that phrase in your Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, you'll see the Old Testament Hebrew, this word, and it's really hard to say without totally clearing your throat, it's chia. 
That's, that word means I am. And so when Moses is talking to the bush, talking to the bush, talking, talking to, to the, the Lord, <laughs> at, they're in front of this bush that's burning, and he says, what am I supposed to tell them? Who's sending me? God says, ach yeah, ach yeah. I am who I am. And you go tell the people of Israel, ach yeah, has sent you. Now, it turns out in Hebrew, this takes way too long to get through, so I'm going to sprint through it just enough to whet your appetite. Do you realize there's no present tense for the to be verb in Hebrew? You cannot say I am in Hebrew. There's no, if, if you want to say I am here, you just say I here. here. Yeah. <laughs> there's no. It's, it's always implied. You know, I am this or I am that. You don't, you don't say am. There is no word. This ech yeah is just the first person future tense. God is actually saying, I will be, which I will be. (laughs) You tell them, I will be has sent you. And it doesn't mean I will be as in, you know, about 15 minutes from now, then I'll be. It's meant to imply, I am now, but it's not, maybe later I won't be. I am now and I will be. In other words, this is the word for existence. And then I the, exist. In the Septuagint, I don't know if this might help other people. Uh, for those familiar with the, what the Septuagint is, it's a Greek interpretation or translation of the Hebrew Bible. And they take this phrase and they say it as, I am the one who exists, with that I am being where you get the ego and me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this one who, and, and it's, if you compare this to, think of the uh, biblical characters as you come across in the scriptures. They're always given a name specific to something that happened to them. You know, they did, or it's related to. Uh, an event in their life. But God doesn't have that because he just is. Um, yeah. he, he's just existing. You can't define him by a moment in time because he's He's just always there. <laughs> you can't get away from him. That's um, right. And so that's why he gives, and that's why it's supposed to catch your eye in Hebrew that, well, I am a thing that just is because you can't even explain it in Hebrew. That's how you know hard it is to, to even derive in their own language. And then you make an important point that we always are reading scripture in translation when Hebrew was translated into Greek, the word I am, when God said, well, I am, has sent you, that word is ego in me, I am. In uh, Hebrew, you know here, but why does he switch it to the word Lord? And the reason, and this will just be the real quick grammar lesson, is I will be, the future tense, is the echia. But if you wanted to say he will be, it'd be really weird for Moses to go up to Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh say, well, who sent you? Moses for him to say I am as if he's referring to himself and so he was taught to say he is sent me and if you say he is it starts sounding a little more like yeah and you see how in Hebrew you'll notice each of these look an awful lot the same and that word he is yeah when formulated uh, it very easily becomes what we call the tetragrammaton it's just four letters in Hebrew that nobody knows how to say because we don't know the vowels. At first they said it in the temple, but when the first temple was destroyed and then they built the second temple, in the second temple they took so seriously the, uh, the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain, that they would not say out loud this name yeah. except for one day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and only in the temple is the only time it would ever be pronounced. Otherwise, they would substitute it with the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. And that's why in your translation, every time you run across God's holy name, they take this convention 
that's been around for thousands of years to take the word Lord as a substitute to say that's who we're talking about. But in your mind and in your heart, anytime you read L-O-R-D there, especially through the Old Testament, or when you see that quoted in your New Testament, no, that's talking about God's holy name. Well, how was that name used in So then if you jump, um, if you you go back and look at how Jews, uh, the Jewish nation would celebrate this name of the Lord, uh, you go to Deuteronomy 6, and you'll come across what's uh, generally known as the Shema prayer. And it's a prayer that Jews would say generally two times a day, morning and evening. Some of them, if they were extra zealous, they would say it three times a day. Um, But in in this prayer, which they take directly from Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear Israel, the Lord, meaning that the exact same word we just read, Yahweh, is our God. Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then, so they would say this every day. Um, and they, they wouldn't use the word Yahweh, as just mentioned. They would insert this word Adonai out of reverence. Um, and it's even um, interesting when you go and see how they, how they documented this word. Uh, they would not write it with the same pen. They would stop, get a brand new one, and then they would write it. Um, and then, again, they wouldn't say it. A lot of, actually, um, Jew, uh, Jewish religions today, they won't write it out at all. Um, they'll leave a blank, and it's inferred what it is. Um, there's so much weight put on this name and the significance of it. Um, and, and I just happened to read this morning uh, Psalms 20. He specifically says, you know, may the name of, of or the God of Jacob, his name, protect you. Uh, keep you safe. And then he talks about, you know, as you as you go into the world and you wave your banner proud, may the name of the Lord be your banner, be your protective force. Um, and you'll see it throughout the Psalms, this idea that the name of God uh, was their driving force, uh, which then can't, you know, I think it can't help me but to link it to back to John 18, the same force that blew these people over, the same force that blew the Samaritan's mind um, is this same power which, which came at this time to motivate Israel to stay faithful to him, to be reminded every day of who he is. And from the beginning, you were forbidden from taking his name in vain or in a way that was empty. And that's what takes us to the uh, Ten Commandments, you know, that begin with God saying, I am the Lord. There it is again. I am uh, the best pronunciation we can get close to is the word Yahweh. Yahweh. Uh, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're not to have any other gods before me. You're not to make idols or graven images. And then of the top ten, number three, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does that mean? Well, I think, at least when I was a kid, it meant you don't use God's name as a curse word, uh, which if you spend time in this passage, that's not what they're talking about at all. Um, to, to have the name, to take the name of, of the Lord in vain is essentially you are misrepresenting the name. So Israel's primary function in the world was to be God's ambassador to the nations. Um, You go back and think of what was promised to Abraham. What was the covenant given to Abraham? Through your seed, all the nations would be blessed. And I think sometimes we get the misconception, oh, well, that doesn't start till Jesus. And that's not the case. It starts much sooner with the children of Israel. It actually starts in Abraham's life himself. He blessed the nations around him. Um, through the actions that he performs. So likewise, Israel is to carry the name of Yahweh to the world, um, which makes perfect sense, because what happened uh, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God tried to, to govern the world, and it fell apart. 
It didn't work. And so after that, he chooses one. He takes Abraham and makes him the one through who the promise comes. And so God is trying to work with Israel to save the world. And so when you take the Lord's name in vain, then you get to things like in Ezekiel, where he talks about they're blaspheming my name by worshiping these other idols, by committing these acts of apostasy. Those things then is what's taken the Lord's name in vain because you're mistreating it. You're not carrying the weightiness of it or the reverence of it. And you're essentially treating it as garbage and saying that, God, you're useless. We don't need you. What's good in our own eyes, going back to the garden, we're going to do that instead because that's better for us. In um, fact, there was, a, there was a severe penalty if you took God out of his place and put yourself in the place of the Lord. Do you remember what that penalty was? His death. Yeah, here we have Leviticus 24 uh, in verse 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp the one who's accursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes, in other words, puts themselves in the place of God and takes him out, the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death all the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner, as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Well, that's a sad verse. <laughs> how, how serious, that's how serious God takes his, his name or someone putting himself in the place of God. But does that help make sense of John chapter 8 when Jesus, in this confrontation with people who took this scripture very seriously, when Jesus says to them, I, I, my father, I'm doing what my father says. And they say, well, our father's Abraham. And Jesus says, you understand, before Abraham existed, and he throws in this word, I am. And their immediate reaction is to pick up stones to stone him. Do you understand why? This was not just, oh, we're mad because he seems to be winning an argument. It is, he has now crossed the line, and we have the authority and the obligation to stone him because that's what the law says. You can't say that. You don't say that unless you you are that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why they they didn't complete the act there. Well, the point is really this. As you go back through the Old Testament, you see that the people took the name of God very seriously with this huge weight because that was his, that is his holy name. You do not take that on yourself as if saying, I am one of the Lord's. You don't do that in an empty way. Every day, at least twice a day, if not three times a day, you say the Shema that the Lord, the Lord our God is one, and that's a part of your daily ritual, this reminder that you are his. And if anybody dare violate that holiness of God, the, the uh, punishment is severe. And then we turn to John, and we find John takes that very name of God, and he uses it 24 different times in different ways from different perspectives, showing just how powerful this name is. You get the point. You get the weight. But here's our question is, so what does that mean to me? in 2023 as a historian that's pretty amazing but what does that mean to me today sure you now have all this information where you have um, a Jewish custom where if you were to 
you know, say anything so blasphemous about their Lord that they wanted to kill you over it. You now have uh, John, who was written after the other synoptics, knew what was in those, and deliberately put all these ego emis uh, into his gospel, specifically to catch your attention, that this is the name of the Lord, and this is incredibly valuable, and this is who Jesus was claiming to be, and, and with all, you know, pain on top of that now, you know the Jewish nation um, revered this name immensely. So, so then what's your response to that? What's your call to that? What are, what are we supposed to do with that information? And then you immediately go back to John 20, and I think you read that last sentence differently. Um, it's one thing to believe in Jesus, and as, we, as Bob mentioned uh, a few weeks back, that that was because you believe, because you have evidence that this is accurate, that this is precise, that it's worth following. You put your trust into it. And by doing that, you then have Zoe, as we talked about before, um, in the power of this same name, this same name that was given to Moses, the same name that carried the hope of Israel, the same name that freed you know, the Israelites out of Egypt, that worked the wonders in Egypt, um, and as and for those who are familiar with you know the the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, the time in Egypt was a pivotal point in their history. They reference it all the time because it was a huge sign for them for what God was able to do, and and this name is what does it for them. And so you think then with all this power, you know, you get to the Garden of, of Gethsemane, and Jesus could have done so many things. You know, we sing the song; he could have called ten thousand angels. Uh, but instead, he, f- he forcibly reminds them, this is who I am. What's about to happen is not because you will it, but because I am laying my life down intentionally. Um, and then you get, you know, Peter, who's ready to start the war, you know, and have the revolt happen. And Jesus tells him, no, put that away. That's not how this is going to go down. Uh, because my name is what's going to make this happen and the power of that. Um, and so you're meant to have this alter your life. You know, we said before, you can't hone in on single topics in John. They all quickly mesh together. So the name of the Lord drives you to newness of life and freedom of death. The name of the Lord motivates you to, or allows you to see the light of the Lord and get out of darkness. You know, all these things, gaining sight, gaining wisdom, gaining knowledge comes because of this name. That's right. And so we, you've heard us say this many times, the purpose of this class is not to come here once a week and learn something about the Gospel of John. The purpose of this class is to drive you back into that quiet room at your house where you close the door and you read from start to finish this whole Gospel. And now that we've given you this overview, now you're not going to be able to turn any pages without either seeing the word I am or the word name and it not just leap off the page at you. But remember how it starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh. This is the big claim of John, that Yahweh became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the claim you get at the very first. And you read the story, and then at the end, John says, I told you all this so that you too could believe, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That changes everything yeah uh, I'm curious if the bell is probably going to ring in about 30 seconds um, what uh, where does that take you what does that bring to mind for you Donna.
Yeah. And, and, and that's an important point, this uh, idea of when we are baptized, we are baptized not just in the name as if we're invoking some magic word. It's you're being baptized into this family, this group, this form of existence that is in him. Uh, and that's a powerful phrase to you. We talked about that with prayer even. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, think of every time you pray. What are you praying it in? You know, what are you saying, let it be so in? In the very name of Jesus, in the very name of the Lord, uh, which is equivalent to then in the very name of Yahweh, let it be so. And so, as you as you pray something, you're calling it into reality. You're you're asking the Lord to make it the existence in which you now are in, because He is the creative force of all existence. Um, yeah, I think that's the second bell. Is that right? I, boy, we just lose time so quickly here. Well, thank you for taking time uh, to join us in the coffee shop today and going through John. We hope that motivates you this week, sometime to pick up this book and read it through, start to finish, and then allow now the name to jump off the page as you read. Thank you. Let's prepare now for worship.